And welcome to our podcast, How Therapy Works, a non-denominational guide to psychotherapy for new and experienced therapists. We're here to help you understand what's going on in your session and what to do next. This is a standalone podcast, as well as a chapter-by-chapter companion guide to Dr. Smith's book, Psychotherapy, A Practical Guide. And I'm Jeffrey Smith, Associate Professor of Psychiatry at New York Medical College, and we're here to relieve some anxiety about being a therapist. And I'm Amelie Southwood, a mental health counselor in private practice, certified in EMDR. Today, we're going to introduce you to a few of the most helpful concepts to clarify the work we do. This podcast is a companion to chapter 20 in the book. Chapter 20 delves into involuntary symptoms and anxiety-related problems. And you state in your introduction to the chapter that the ways to approach the various symptoms of anxiety-related disorders such as generalized anxiety, panic, OCD, and somatization, are largely the same. Could you tell us a little bit more about that, Dr. Smith? Right. So this is the, the, the theme in, with this group, is the thing that, that makes them all similar, is that once people get preoccupied with these symptoms, then they feel like they have to somehow make that symptom go away, make the anxiety go away, make the panic go away, make the obsessions go away, or, or fix whatever it is about their body that, that is uh, bothering them. And the more they get focused on changing these symptoms, making them go away, the worse the symptoms get. Uh, and that's, that's one of the major research findings of psychology of the last couple of decades, is that that approach of trying to get rid of the symptoms just doesn't work, it makes them worse. There's a big paradox there because the aim of medicine since the the age of the Greeks has been to relieve suffering. And so when you go to see a doctor, the expectation in our culture anyway, is that you're going there to have somebody relieve your suffering. And if your suffering is anxiety or obsessions and and so on, you, you want the doctor to make those symptoms go away. Uh oh, well, now we know that the more you try to make them go away, the worse they get. It's kind of like trying not to think of a white elephant. The more you try not to think of a white elephant, the more you think of it. You got it. And to make things more complicated, there really are some treatments that will temporarily make those symptoms go away. Could you tell us a little bit about how you approach these various symptoms? Yes, yeah, so so these all lump together because they all really uh, involve quite a bit of anxiety, and uh, anxiety is something that involves involves people's biology. Some people have more of a tendency to feel anxious, but the way these things show up in treatment and the way we approach them are really very similar, and so that's why I think it's a good idea to sort of put them together in this uh, in this chapter. And the treatment principles are going to be remarkably similar for for each of those those fairly different kinds of symptoms what they all have in common is that that nobody wants to have those those symptoms nobody wants anxiety or panic or ocd or to be preoccupied with things having to do with one's body 
they just seem to happen. They just seem to come out of the blue. So that really sets kind of the stage for it. And they have some common aspects to each of them. So you say that they are structured in two parts, each one, that there's a superficial EDP and a deeper causative EDP. Yes. So the superficial one is that when people have those kinds of symptoms, they want to get rid of the symptom and they focus very heavily on trying to get rid of the, of the symptom. And that becomes an EDP in itself because as EDPs are all behaviors that, that people do in order to avoid some uncomfortable feeling, well, the uncomfortable feeling is anxiety. And, and we all know that when we feel anxious, we want to do something so that we don't feel anxious anymore. And so that's the superficial part. And a lot of the treatment of these EDPs has to do with, with dealing with people's avoidance of the, of the anxiety itself. But then there's another layer because not only is the anxiety something that's partially caused by maybe a physical predis or a biological predisposition, but usually there's, there's some emotional reason for it. Usually there are emotional underpinnings. Those are harder to get to, harder to understand often, and may take a longer time to work with. But there also can be very important and maybe even crucial to the long-term uh, success with, with, a, uh, with one of these EDPs. And then there's actually one more layer, uh, which I think is familiar to you under the name of secondary gain. Yes. So, you know, secondary gain is, is the idea that in having one of these symptoms and the things that people do to try to get rid of them have some consequences. For example, uh, people apply for disability. And then the, the government, for better or for worse, sometimes a little of both, rewards the symptom. Right. But we want to be sure that we're not victimizing the patient or, or blaming the patient, rather, right? That when we use the term secondary gain, that it's really an unconscious one. That's right. People don't do those things on purpose. And there's a tendency to want to blame the victim there. So I'd actually... I'd rather, when we talk about that aspect of these problems, I'd rather talk about enabling because it's the family or the government or the, the system that provides those rewards and that's what can produce some distortion in the long-term consequences and, and course of these problems. So, so we can think then of the superficial part, the, the deeper causative part, and, and then the consequences that may have to do with factors outside the individual. So you did write something that I thought was very interesting. You made a point uh, that the avoidance of the symptom actually makes the symptom worse. Exactly. And, and what we'll see when we get to the treatment principles is, is that the traditional thing that the doctors are supposed to do is help people feel better. And that's what patients want. But that also can make things worse because the treatments for that aren't very effective and because then they put all the focus on, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Have I eliminated my anxiety yet? So we'll get to that later on. Could you, could you give us some, um, some examples, like maybe a case study about um, 
working with anxiety or how to approach anxiety, panic, OCD, and somatic preoccupation. Very good. Uh, let me do that. So let's start with anxiety. Because anxiety and, and panic are related, but they're, they're a little bit different. So I'm thinking of a, of a, of a man who had anxiety all of his life, and uh, eventually his attempts to get rid of his anxiety led him into an addiction. Well, once, once he was not using substances anymore to avoid his anxiety, we could work with the anxiety. But in the long run, what we found in terms of the, the causative part of it went way back to his early life when his dad had a chronic illness, a heart condition. And it was talked about a lot in the family that, you know, your dad is really sick and you have to be quiet. And who knows, he might have to go to the hospital and something really terrible might happen. Well, this, this little boy of seven thought that he was going to have to take over and be the man of the house. And he knew that he didn't have the maturity or the wherewithal to do that. And so it made him extremely anxious because he was, he was afraid from one minute to the next. And we know that the non-conscious problem solver doesn't really understand time. And so someday you might have to uh, be the grown-up in the family. Could mean the next minute, tomorrow, any moment. So that really created a lifelong anxiety for him about being grown-up and mature and having to function. And so long after the, the fear of his dad and long after the dad's death before he was, well, he was in his teens, that anxiety kept on. And we'll, we can talk a little bit more about it when we get to, uh, to treatment principles. Uh, one thing that he exemplified was that as he continued to not do anything to take the anxiety away, over a period of years, it got better. He got more tolerant of anxiety. And he could say, oh, that's my anxiety again and not feel like he had to do something to get rid of it. Uh-huh. And panic is a little bit, it's a, it's a lot worse, right? People feel that they're going to die when they have a panic attack. Can you give us uh, a case study? Yeah. You, you remember that, that Jack, who we've kind of used as an example throughout this book, had a panic attack, and we've analyzed that one quite a bit. I'll, I'll give you another one which is a, a man in his, uh, in his 30s who's a war veteran and came for PTSD because he was having panic attacks and he was assumed that they were related to his wartime experiences with death and near death and, and all kinds of very, very frightening experiences. And so his focus was that the panic attacks were interfering with his ability to work and were causing him tremendous distress. And, and so he we focused on, I just want to get rid of the panic attacks. And even before that, typical of panic people, the feeling that a panic attack could hit at any time becomes a factor. That becomes a kind of uncertainty that the person wants to eliminate. So not only panic attacks, but then there's the anticipation of panic attacks, which becomes a problem of itself. Well, just to uh, make a, a long story short, as we got some control over the panic attacks and began to explore the causative factors, what turned out was that the panic probably had more to do with the breakup of his parents' marriage and the fact that when he was with his dad, he was felt safe and comfortable. But when he was with his mom, there was a stepfather who 
he wasn't comfortable with and the stepfather was rather violent towards him. And there was a lot of fear of that he was going to get in trouble with his mom or with his stepfather, that he was going to be rejected when he was staying with them. And then there was an incident where the, the stepfather got violent with him and that really created problems. But one more problem in mixed in there was that there was a lot of normal and healthy anger. But when you're a little kid, when you're seven years old and you're angry at your mom for leaving your dad and for not being very warm and nice, then you can't say anything about it. And so the anger all got stuffed down. But one of the sources of panic attacks was later on when the anger began to come to the surface. So often we find things when we explore the causation of these symptoms, we find things that we wouldn't necessarily have expected. And one really has to have a very open mind in looking into these things and also a willingness to have first impressions turn out to be wrong. Mm -hmm. And so then what about OCD? Do you have a case study for that? Yeah, I'm thinking of of a woman in her 30s who felt like she wasn't really getting the mothering that she needed, but she also couldn't complain about it because her mother was kind of a saint, uh, somebody who devoted all of her time and attention to taking care of her children, but she wasn't really connected with them very well. And so this person had a feeling that she had to do the mothering in her mother's place and that she was would be better at it than her mother. And she was very detail-oriented and kind of focused on getting everything right. It's like living in a glass house and, and wanting to throw stones. You know, if you're going to be critical of your mom, then it feels like you'd better not have any any faults yourself. And so she became very, very focused on kind of perfection on a detail level. And that became an obsession with any kind of any kind of imperfection and and became a problem in itself. Okay. So then lastly, somatic preoccupation. Do you have a case for that? You know, there's there's a wide variety of of those. It can be a preoccupation with a a body defect or a fear that some kind of illness is going to come um, or preoccupation with a particular symptom like pain. And and so there are a, a wide variety, but what they have in common is that it feels like this problem has to be taken care of. And so I'm thinking of a, of a man who would spend hours looking in the phone book to find a, a, another doctor to go see uh, about the symptoms that he thought were the beginnings of some terrible nervous disease that was going to attack his body and, and wind him up death. And when we explored that, it had sort of a dual direction in that. The, the original problem that hadn't been solved was early, early trauma where he had been assaulted by a teenager when he was about five, uh, sexually assaulted by a teenage boy. And the real crux of the trauma was that in the end, he was too afraid to fend this kid off and too little. And yet he held himself responsible for the fact that he had, he was too weak to fight off this, this assault. And so it was his own weakness was the problem that he was struggling with. And that got symbolically translated into a, a physical problem. Partly it was guilt for seeking some kind of comfort 
and and partly I think there was a sort of secondary gain aspect in that the comfort that he had never allowed himself was something that would happen if he was sick. If he got deathly ill, then people would gather around him and take care of him. I think that was one of the things that uh, touched his inner problem solver as, as maybe that's a way to get something in a way that was legitimate and that wouldn't represent weakness. And so there was both a desire to be a sick person and a fear of it. So treating these cases, treating these symptoms, what are the main principles, uh, starting with uh, treating the avoidance of symptoms? Yes. Uh, so, so that's a real paradox. Um, um, and it's especially for psychiatry, but I think, it's, and especially in the United States of America, where we are very focused on medications, uh, that really becomes an issue because it is possible to eliminate anxiety. If you, if you drink enough alcohol, if you take enough benzodiazepine drugs, then you can eliminate anxiety. And so that becomes very attractive both for patients and for the people who treat them and for therapists too. When the patient says, I have to get rid of this anxiety, I can't stand it. Everybody wants to help this person get rid of the anxiety. Well, so the paradox is that that creates some real problems. And the first and simplest one is that trying to eliminate the anxiety makes you focus on it, makes you wait for the anxiety and makes you highly attuned to any little bit of anxiety. So even if you've gotten rid of 98% of the anxiety, there's still a 2% that's nagging at you and you feel like I've got to get rid of that too. And the medications that do the job are less effective the more you use them. So not only do we have a preoccupation with anxiety, but we also have drugs that the brain does a pretty good job of compensating for the medication and says, the brain says in effect, hey, there's not enough anxiety going on around here. And it turns up the volume on the anxiety. And so little by little, the drugs are less effective. And so then what do we do? We either increase the dose and run into the same problem again later on down the road, or get more side effects, or we don't eliminate the dose and, and the problem begins to come back and the patient is not happy and is, is upset. And a lot of times what happens in the end is, is patients realize that the drugs just don't really do the job and they let them go. And then they begin to focus on how can I come to tolerate anxiety better? And so if we can help our client move to that one, to learning to accept anxiety and learning to cope with it, then we're on a more effective track. But I am going to say that when people's functioning is compromised by their anxiety, uh, we pretty much have to do something about it. And so I often do use medication. And I explain to people this is a short-term thing that's going to buy us some time, but before very long, we're going to need to work on helping you accept anxiety and learn to cope with it because the medications buy us some time. I'll just mention that there's kind of two major classes of medications here. There are benzodiazepines, which work like alcohol. The mechanism of action is the same. Some last a long time. Some are more short-acting. And they're addictive. And they're addictive. And 
the withdrawal syndrome for those things is guess what? Here. More anxiety. Right. It's the opposite. And then there are the antidepressants, which do a good job of making panic attacks less likely and reducing all kinds of emotions, including anxiety. They do a fairly good job of that, not as effective as the benzodiazepines, um, but they have side effects, nausea and dizziness and weight gain. And, and in the long run, they too often lose their, their potency. And so again, those things may buy us some time to begin to work on the acceptance of the anxiety. So I would be really curious to know why the brain thinks it needs a certain dose of anxiety and why it would set out to manufacture some more anxiety for itself to deal with. But I don't know if that's within the scope of today's podcast. That's an excellent question. And, And the reason I think is pretty clear, if you think about how our nervous system evolved, that was a couple hundred thousand years ago when people were running, living in caves and, and running around with skins on their backs. Uh, at least we imagine that. They needed their anxiety. They needed to feel anxious when they were treading into new territory and might run into a predator or maybe another tribe. And so anxiety is a really, really critical, important signal that tells us we better be ready for action. Well, now in our culture, being ready for action is the last thing that's usually necessary. We're pretty rarely in situations that require that kind of physical defense, but the brain is still back 200 years, 200,000 years ago, waiting for the next um, saber-toothed tiger to show up. Right. Okay. So set for species survival, the nervous system is going to turn up the dial if it is subject to benzodiazepines or antidepressants. Right, and, and some people are more sensitive to that. You know, and you, if you think about evolution, it's also one of the strengths of the human species is that we do have differences between individuals. So maybe you need somebody who's the fearless leader and has no anxiety, but you need somebody else who's going to be the careful person who's watching out for what bad thing might happen. Right, interesting. So we have the the medical component of treatment. In this chapter, you do mention cognitive behavioral therapy as being a very effective treatment principle. Uh, yes, yeah. so, so CBT really, and it's the cognitive uh, behavioral people who were kind of the first to realize the importance of the problem with avoiding anxiety, that that makes it worse. And so the principles of CBT treatment really are, are about about teaching people not to avoid their anxiety, but to to handle it, to be more accepting of it, and to cope with it. And so, so I think the first one is um, is really to do some, some psychoeducation to teach people about why anxiety is there, that it's a product of the non-conscious problem solver, and and it was important to us at least two hundred thousand years ago, if not today, and. You know, to, to kind of treat it like body odor. It's something that human beings just have, and it has a function, but it isn't something that should compel us to do things to eliminate it. And so that's, that's kind of the, the first principle of treatment. There are some other things that go along with that physiologically when people hyperventilate, which they often do when they're anxious. It causes, if you keep it up long enough, changes in, your, in the acidity of your blood, which makes your fingers tingle. And that 
adds to the feeling that, oh my God, something terrible is going to happen. And so you can teach people that that's a normal thing and that you can breathe into a paper bag and that will prevent that effect from, from happening. Uh, another aspect of cognitive behavioral therapy has to do with the things that we've identified in this uh, podcast as helpers, as things that the non-conscious problem solver does to influence conscious decision-making. And so sometimes the mind comes up with automatic thoughts that make things worse, like, uh, oh my gosh, you know, this, this anxiety is going to cause you to sweat. And if you sweat, your coworkers are going to see it. And then you're going, they're going to realize that you're in a panic and they're going to fire you because they know that you've got some kind of a, some kind of a problem and you're going to lose your job and then you're going to be destitute. Well, that kind of helper automatic thoughts are also things that cognitive behavioral therapy does a good job with, with helping people realize that, that those are fine thoughts to have. They come from your problem solver, but they're not thoughts that you should listen to and, and take into account. Because the fact that if you're sweating, you're very, it's not likely at all that you're going to lose your job as a result of that. Right. So that's really a, a cognitive distortion, catastrophic thinking. Right. Um, so catastrophic thinking is, is, um, is an irrational helper. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. What about acceptance and focusing on emotion and healing? Yeah. Um, so we can we can help people to see that they're that the little kid inside, which is another name for the non-conscious problem solver, is is deathly afraid, and that that inner self doesn't really understand that nothing terrible is going to happen. So we can, in a way, help people come to acceptance of the worst case scenario, because what makes anxiety so compelling is the feeling that oh my gosh, something is could happen that must not happen. Well, for children, that's true. For children, they just act as if they must uh, survive and they must keep on growing and learning, That and that's what evolution has programmed into us. But as adults, we know that once in a while, one can make a choice to sacrifice one's life, uh, like when people go to war, and there are times when death is part of life. And so... CBT learned not too long ago about exposure therapy, that when a feeling is actually conscious, when it's activated, like fear of death, that one can take in at the same time the cognitive antidote that, well, death is part of life, and it's something that will happen to all of us, and it's okay to accept that as a possibility. It's not a likely thing. It's not likely that the airliner is going to fall out of the sky. In fact, it's less likely than you're going to die of a car accident, but it does happen sometimes. And so one way of helping people to eliminate the intensity of that fear, the feeling that this must not, absolutely must not happen, is by helping them feel that feeling and at the same time think about the antidote, that that the worst case scenario could actually happen. And it's something that we just need to accept. So sometimes that's a strategy that helps take the direness out of the, the fear that the person is experiencing. So you also mentioned eliciting uh, feelings and, uh, and say that OCD causes an increase in serotonin. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? 
Yes, and that, so that's related to the same thing. It's eliciting feelings. And the way to elicit feelings with somebody who has rituals is to ask them not to do the rituals. And then guaranteed, they're going to have a very intense feeling of anxiety. And we can use the same principle of exposure by helping them to not do the, the ritual. It activates the anxiety. And we can help them to learn that that anxiety is, is not the end of the world. It's going to be okay. And the result is that the intensity of that anxiety drops down. It's not as, as terribly troubling, troublesome as it was. And now the research on that is quite interesting because when people take pretty high doses of SSRI medications, then that increases the availability of serotonin and that reduces the intensity of their obsessions and their compulsions. And it really works. The interesting research is that when you stop doing the rituals and you learn to cope with the anxiety, that also increases serotonin. And so this is one example where it's been demonstrated that psychotherapy can produce the same kinds of chemical changes in the brain that medication does. Hence the importance of mindfulness. Yes. And so, so mindfulness is another aspect of sort of the, the cognitive and behavioral aspects of treatment for the, the, the feeling that one has to eliminate anxiety. Mindfulness is, is again a way of eliciting the feeling of being in the moment and experiencing the, the anxiety and then at the same time taking in the antidote, which is, is this feeling of perspective of it's a big world and, and I'm just a small person and my anxiety is, is not the end of the world. It's, it's not that big a thing. So then could we anchor all of this in, um, in the example that you used with your patient who experienced panic? Right. So in that case, um, I, I used medication because his functioning was immediately impaired. And then we worked on worst case scenarios on, you know, death is part of life. We worked on asking a lot about, well, exactly what is it you're, you're afraid of when you're having this panic? What do you think is going to happen? And it was mostly death at first. And then what showed up only later on was anger, was the time that I think I mentioned earlier in a podcast that he, he suddenly had a panic attack on the highway and felt like he had to race home. And when I asked, well, why do you need to race home? He said to protect everybody else from the rage that would come out if he stopped. And so that gave us a clue. So in that case, we did then the work with the other aspect of his panic. So one aspect was his fear of fear itself and the efforts to eliminate that fear. The other aspect was beginning to dig into why was he so panicky in the first place. And that's what led back to those issues with the breakup of the parents' marriage and the feeling of, of anger and lack of safety when he was with his mom and with his stepfather. And that those things, he just never had, had a, a, a chance to deal with when he was little. Nobody was really listening. And when he told a friend at school, somebody overheard the conversation. And within hours, the uh, authorities were knocking on the door 
and took him away from his mother and she was in a rage with him for the next 30 years. So we needed to go in and to begin to deal with the sources of that anger. And that's where we could, again, activate the original emotions, the causative emotions, the anger, the, the loneliness, the, the need for, for support and comfort that had been neglected when he was little and could begin to help him accept that those feelings were okay and to work on healing them by, by validating that at the time those, those were normal, healthy feelings and they just didn't have a chance to be expressed or shared or in any way healed. You know, Dr. Smith, oftentimes my own patients ask me how long I believe treatment is going to last. And the, the deeper layer of EDP sounds to me like it's, it's really an investment of time, that we're really uh, uh, beginning a journey into the landscape of the inner self. And I'm just wondering, what would you answer a patient who comes to you with panic, for instance, and says, how long is this therapy going to take? It's, it's, a, uh, it's a really good question, and I think the answer for the CBT aspect of it, for the, the, the surface superficial layer, is fairly quickly, is, um, is a matter of weeks or months to get to where it's not quite as compelling, it's not quite as terrible, and you have some tools in your toolbox uh, for, for dealing with the need to eliminate the anxiety and trading that in for some acceptance of anxiety and some tools for coping with it. But I think that does tend to be uh, limited and anxiety has a way of coming back. And so one model of treatment is to say, well, you're pretty likely to have this come back at some point and you'll just have to come in for a, a refresher course. Uh, but I think as the theme of this podcast is really about going deeper and trying to look at the roots of things. And, and there, the therapy for these conditions is, is kind of the same as the, the therapy that we've been talking about for many other issues and, and the same techniques and principles of exploration and activating the deep down emotions. And then doing that in the context where there's a healing relationship that provides the antidote to a lot of fears and sometimes ideas that provide the antidote to you know, a mistaken understanding, like L who thought that he was going to have to be the man of the house when he was seven, and he was terrified of it. Uh, you know, that's something where understanding that misconception about life is something that can be the antidote to anxiety. And so are you finished the chapter by stating that sometimes time heals. That's, that's true too. Uh, and, and my favorite example uh, came from an interview I saw on TV of Joan Baez, who younger people don't remember, but she was Bob Dylan's girlfriend and she was a folk singer in her own right, uh, very well known and famous and, and excellent. And in this interview, when she was in her 60s or 70s, she told the interviewer that she had terrible, terrible stage fright. And she would be giving a concert in front of thousands of people and would have to go backstage to pull herself together, deal with her anxiety and be able to come out and, and perform. 
And this was a real, real handicap for her. Well, the interviewer at some point said, well, what happened to the anxiety? And she sort of was, had a puzzled look and she said, well, it went away. <laughs> and, and I think that's an example of how anxiety over years does tend to heal if you go out and do the performance anyway. If you keep on experiencing the anxiety, accepting it, uh, coping with it, then little by little, it does heal. We hope to accelerate that some by you know, eliciting the anxiety and, and doing it in a context that's, um, that's very safe. So exposure actually accelerates that process, but it's a process that sometimes uh, happens spontaneously over, over a long period of time. I think, you know, in, in today's world, we think of psychotherapy as being a matter of months or a few years, and we, we don't think of it being a longer process than that, but often it is. And people change, they change sometimes rapidly, sometimes in important critical moments, and sometimes very gradually. Right. So then this really calls for a commitment to, to the well-being of our patients. Presumably, we already come to session with that. But really a commitment on the part of the patient to being willing to treat this for as long as it is necessary. That's right. And I think at the same time, we also need to be accepting of those people who are just not ready or willing to make that kind of commitment. And, and they just want to get feel a little bit better and, and pack up their, their gains and go on their way. That's a valid decision as well, because it's true that the, sometimes the deeper things are obviously necessary and really critically important. And sometimes they may not seem quite as, as important. And so it's a matter of cost and benefit um, from the point of view of, of the patient. But as therapists, we're certainly always happier when we have somebody who really wants to get to the bottom of it and, and do a more thorough job. Because in the long run, I think that's something that leads to a happier life and, and long-term gains and, and success. Right, right, which is what we all strive for. Okay, so this concludes today's podcast, I think. And we hope today's podcast has been helpful to you. We'd love you to visit Dr. Smith's website at www.howtherapyworks.com where you can purchase the book, Psychotherapy, A Practical Guide, and find other articles for clients and therapists. Dr. Smith, would you like to add anything? Well, you know, I think this discussion does bring one, one other principle to mind that's quite important. And, and that is that as, as you get to understand your patient quite thoroughly, we've, we may start out with a problem list and, and with a, a number of different symptoms, but in the end, essentially always, it boils down to just, just one or two aspects of some major challenge that the person experienced. The, the mind has a way of organizing its, its problems around a, a central theme. And I think that that simplifies our work in understanding quite a bit to keep reminding ourselves that, that whatever's at the bottom of all of this is not a whole bunch of different things. It's not a list of things. It, it's, it's generally one major, major challenge that may have a few different aspects, a few different facets to it, but one major challenge that that person's life has, has revolved around solving. 
like uh, the the guy whose father had heart disease. His life was really revolved around dealing with the challenge of his perceived need to become the man of the house when he was not old enough to handle that responsibility. Right. So we really have to be sleuths. Mm-hmm. What makes it so fascinating, too. Absolutely. So I think that's it for today. And I'd like to wish everybody well until the next podcast. Okay. And we'll talk to you next time. Very good. Looking forward to it. Goodbye, everybody. Bye. Bye.